This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Danny Zabal, writer and illustrator of Life, Death, and Sorcery, available to buy at a comic shop near you. Was that good, Greg? Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. We're here with a very special guest, Danny Zabal. Danny is an illustrator from Toronto who specializes in comics, concept art, uh, painting, editorial illustrations, and um, one of my favorite stops on the web, Obsolete Heroes. Um, Hello, Danny. Hey, man. What's up? Um, Well, we are here also in the... uh, recording studio today with Justin Curry, who you may know from our previous episodes as the person who has to suffer with me as my co-host. So um, uh, we'd like to welcome you to the show and ask you some difficult questions about uh, what you're doing right now. Where are you? Oh, where am I? Like yeah. at this moment? Yeah, right this moment. I'm, um, I'm, sitting, um, I'm sitting in a... Um, Kind of a well-furnished little meeting room, you know, nice brick walls. There's a fake plant behind me. You're in Toronto um, right now? I am in Toronto, yes. What's the weather like? The weather's really uh, slushy. It's really gross, yeah. You went from 40 below yesterday to it's going to be plus one today here in Winnipeg, so. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. So we're going to have slush here, too. We uh, really appreciate the slush after that minus 40, though. This yeah, is, this is magical. Um, the reason I'm making such a point of talking about where you are versus where we are is that you are our very first call-in guest. Oh, my God. Yeah, normally Super Pulp Science has the guests brought in under duress to our secret lair <laughs> down in the exchange district in Winnipeg. But uh, today we've used uh, the magic of technology to bring you all the way from Toronto. To our uh, it's usually people that uh, we owe money to, and we tell them we'll pay them if they come to the studio, and then surprise, there's mics. Surprise, the you're on a podcast. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, no doubt under cover of night, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Um, okay, so I'm going to pin you down on a couple of other things. You are a comic illustrator, and you I work am, yes. for Chapter House Comics on a book called Life, Death, and Sorcery. If our listeners, I don't work. I don't work for them. Okay, good. I perfect. Work so with them. For our listeners, <laughs> clarify your working uh, arrangement and tell them a little bit about the story. Uh, well, I mean, there's not much to it. Basically, um, uh, Chapter House licenses my comic, and they they have the publishing rights for it. So um, I provide them with the content, and then they print the book and distribute the book, and we split the winnings, basically. Um, so from an editorial point of view... Um, they have very little influence. Um, uh, mostly, it's up to me to provide the series with its uh, with its meat, uh, ostensibly. So I'm I'm not really beholden to them in any kind of like narrative way, anything like that. You do all the book design as well. Uh, no, no, that the book design is done by um, Keith and oh damn, I forgot her name. Um, Keith Morris. <coughs> And um, he, uh, another layout artist whose name escapes me right now. If unfortunately, it'll get you into <laughs> trouble for forgetting, we'll edit. <laughs> you look it up, and then we'll edit in me remembering what it's called, <laughs> right, who they are, so that you seem like a real gentleman, right? Uh, no, it's fine, man. People forget things all the time. I can't. I'm not. How, 
I can't be expected to remember everybody's <laughs> name. Like, what kind of, like, ridiculous person remembers everyone's name in their life? I've never met this person. They did a fantastic job um, doing the uh, doing the design. Uh, the book, I'm really pleased with how the trade turned out. And um, I adore their work. Unfortunately, it's been months, and uh, I'm not as young as I used to be, man. That's true. That's so true of us all. So they, they do the book layout, but you provide them with the finished pages that are – tell us about your process as far as uh, – Well, I mean it's um, – you know, basically what I do is um, I work mostly digitally, um, and the process is I script, I rough, I uh, letter, then I ink, and then um, sort of during that – period there are a few sort of editorial interjections like with volume two right now um uh, Alison O'Toole and I just sort of had a very productive conversation about sort of this big block of the story so I'm just going back in there and redrawing those elements um and then uh when I'm pleased with it I color it and then just sort of upload it to Dropbox and toss it over to Keith so those roughs you're talking about um, mm-hmm. I saw a video that you posted. You do a blue line layer. Is that? I do a many color layer. I do I do lots of different colors um, because uh, I I really enjoy a fluid process. I I don't. <laughs> what? Is there like a screen door nearby? That was the, that was the haunted that was the haunted studio door opening and closing. <laughs> Um, if you must yeah, so know, you, I, I adjusted this giant mechanical colonial marine machine gun arm that the microphone is on, <laughs> and it made a horrible <laughs> screeching noise, which you all got to hear. So uh, we're learning the difference between uh, a podcast rig and a, and a radio rig. So, like, there's all this pomp and circumstance in the room that we're in right now, which is, uh, you know, not going to lie, it's a little intimidating. The soundboard from 1971 is Gregory is just not nearly professional enough to be here. He's That's true. Out of his element. Hey, man. Yeah. He's, Take it away, Justin. He, You're in charge now. Oh, God, no. He is himself all the time. You know? That's the, that's the great thing about Greg is that mm-hmm. he's just, he's the most, he's the he's a, an individual who, the only individual I've met in, in my life who is just himself all the time. I don't know how to encapsulate that feeling well, other than saying that. that. I suppose. No, no, no. It's great. It's great. There's no no standing on ceremony. There's no pretense. I love it. It's like you met me immediately and you're like, let's be friends. It was great. It was like grade four. It was awesome. It was like grade four. Because I was like, <laughs> that kid can draw better than me. So I either have to beat him up or be his friend. <laughs> so, you know, that's oh, come on. All my grade four relationships went that way. Yeah. Oh, don't be silly. Nobody's nobody's better than anybody. Well, um, okay. So you is, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna. I want to. I want to finish telling you about my process here with the refs. So, um, so what I do is I. I have a lot of. I really take advantage of layers. So I have several rough layers. Usually, I separated like background, one set of characters, another set of characters, and then special effects like motion lines and you know explosions and fire and stuff like that. And um, basically, it's that I can manipulate everything and I can like really fine tune the layout so that everything is sort of as tight and as um, kind of um, I can just get the most amount of information out of an image as possible. Uh, so I really I'm I'm kind of a meticulous guy. Like I really like to like I'm a planner. Like I like to plan things. So uh, so each panel is like really really sort of obsessively planned so that I can get the most 
flow out of out of everything yeah and then i mean usually what i do is i usually go over it again with just sort of like a loose pencil layer and then then inks essentially so you're working on a cintiq is that what i'm seeing i am yeah yeah i use the cintiq and i work in um clip studio or i guess manga studio whichever one you want to call it oh i just assumed from the video that you were working in illustrator or something like that no, no, I'm actually kind of a buffoon in Illustrator. Um, Photoshop is my game, um, but I uh, I usually use Photoshop for coloring or just for painting, just for like sort of freehand concept art, like find, speed painting and stuff like that. Do you find Manga Studio just the way the the pencils and pens work is just a more natural feel than than Photoshop's brushes? I do actually. Yeah, I do. That's I what I, hear I a lot. Um, it's, it's a bit more, there's a, there's a bit more subtlety and there's definitely more range in terms of just sort of the kinds of pencils and, uh, pens that you can create. You know, I feel like Photoshop is really kind of jack of all trades and master of none in that sense where like the brushes are cool and they're fine, but they're really more of for like a more blunt approach, which is great because you can't beat, um, Photoshop in terms of just sort of how prolifically you can paint in it you know um but with um with manga studio uh i feel like if it's really manga studio wants to be best in class for producing lines just line work and it really does a it does a great job like i i love it i fell in love with it the moment i started using it it was just like i couldn't believe that i was i was doing it the other way just uh, curious, like interface-wise, going from I, I've never used Manga Studio. I've I've heard it recommended by by lots of of other peers. Um, but from somebody who knows Photoshop to jump into it, just interface and learning curve-wise, easy transition or? Um, it took me a few months, but I um I I really like learning software, mm. and um I have been around the bend enough that the way I teach myself software is um, a very measured, like a phased approach. You know, like I got into Manga Studio and like right off the bat, I realized like, okay, this thing can do a lot of things. I don't, maybe I don't know a lot of the subtleties and a lot of the short keys are, are different. So I was like, okay, well, what does it do well now that I understand? Well, it inks really well. So what I started doing was like roughing in Photoshop, importing it into Manga Studio, and then inking over top of that. And then after a while in Manga Studio, I was like, okay, I'm going to experiment a bit more. I'm going to try and do pencils. Okay, then I'm going to try and do roughs. And then slowly but surely, I kind of migrated completely into Manga Studio. It also helped that I had a project to learn on, um, which was um, First Hero. There's um, like a point in First Hero where it's like, like, you know, uh, 75% Photoshop, and then 25% Manga Studio, and then I sort of like tip over the 50% mark, and then by the time I make it to the end, like the last issue, it's all done in Manga Studio. Okay. Do you, can people tell, or can only you tell? Uh, I don't. Maybe people are. Yeah, maybe there, they can tell. I a, I don't really I don't really see a difference per se. But, yeah, there's a point recently yeah. where I shifted from sort of a 70% uh, analog, like practical approach of like actual collage to just digital collage like it was 70 percent actual and 30 percent digital and it's you know sort of 90 percent digital now and maybe 10 percent actual in the work that i'm doing 
Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's great for expediency and you save tons of money on supplies, you know. And plus, like, you know, there's, um, especially with a Cintiq, like, if you if you start using a Cintiq, then you, you get sort of a, more of a tactile kind of um, uh, energy from it. And so you can, there's something, that, you know, there's something about having your hand on the paper that's really great. I mean, I, I actually yeah, don't mind another style tablet you know but yeah it's really good i was gonna ask if you found now that you're working so uh that so much of your process is digital that you feel naked with all those computer components when you just want to oh no 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 it's fine i mean you like i mean i maybe it's maybe a bit messier to for me to bring certain art supplies with me and so a lot of the time when I'm on the road or when I'm at a show and I'm doing a sketch cover, I'm using art supplies that I actually kind of don't really like using. <laughs> I, I'm, I like using, like, I like using, like, a pot of ink and, like, a pen or, like, a really, really nice uh, calligraphy brush, you know, um, something as precise as possible. And, you know, a lot of, like, these micron, like, felt tip pens and stuff I find kind of restricting and sort of um, unpredictable in ways that I don't like. Mm. Um so in that sense, I don't really enjoy that. Like, I wish I could just take a drafting table with me wherever <laughs> I go and just set up and, you know, drag a lamp down and then do it that way. So future, but, um, you, future you has pot of ink and drafting table on your rider for doing shows. Right? Yeah, yeah, that would be great. That would be great. And like a nice quiet spot. Like, preferably I'll be able to like set up a little cage around the booth with like little curtains, soundproof curtains. People you know? only like talk to you through a microphone? You know, like no, no, they can, kind of? no, no, they can, they can just, they can walk in, you know, there'll just be like a rug there and some nice pictures hanging up and like maybe some warm lamp light. <laughs> oh, sort of like they're getting their, their fortunes told. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Except instead of a fortune, they're buying something. <laughs> they're making your fortune instead of having yeah, exactly. Um, making I my was, fortune. I was curious before, uh, like, did you get right into using a Cintiq, or did you start with a tablet doing digital art? Um, like, with oh, yeah, Abu I started, and then upgraded. Yeah, upgraded? I mean, yeah, I started with um, I started with oh, how many years ago is this? Two thousand two. So, however many years ago that is, sixteen years ago, I got like a Wacom, like a hundred dollar little dinky little Wacom tablet that and I started practicing blue thing I think I had the same yeah. one yeah yeah that yeah. broke me of the habit of using tablets actually well, I had one of those too and <laughs> I was like no never I can't I can't do this you need to yeah. more time it takes yeah. it takes a long time to get used to that one it does it does I really had to find my process and um I practiced with it and I liked it and then really what uh, turned me on to like actually sort of using a tablet on more of a committed basis because I was still mostly like um like an art supply guy at that point was um, sort of my first studio job. And then, um, you know, they, they gave me like a giant tablet to use. And I was like, oh, man, I can never go back now. This is great. <laughs> so <laughs> this infrastructure is so good. gave you a sense. Yeah, yeah. And I realized, you know, when you use it enough and like when you have a, a place like work where you can practice and get good on it, you don't have to worry about that upfront investment and whether or not you're going to get anything out of it. It was just a no-brainer to just blow my whole first paycheck on like a nice big juicy tablet, you know? <laughs> Hello, computer. Why comics? I don't know. You know, I really love, I love telling stories and I'm a visual guy. And um, 
comics just I, I for me comics are magical and I, I get I get swept away in comics and um, I don't really talk about this too much but really my desire to draw comics comes from my desire to evoke that feeling in other people hmm. you know my my romance with comics is that was you know late at night sitting in my little chair in my bedroom with a with the light on everybody fast asleep and me you know reading some of the greats you know some of the really excellent comics that's when i fell in love with comics i mean i i I would say that i really enjoyed comics as a teenager in the most sort of garbled messy like just candy eating pear-shaped loserish kind of way you possibly can which is just like quarter bins and you know (laughs) x-men and all this stuff just like oh give me more and then um (laughs) are my favorite still uh, but it wasn't until I started um, reading more like, I don't know, I want to say like indie comics or even underground comics, um, you know, Harvey Pekar stuff or even sort of oddball things like Land of Nod. And uh, Bone was really the one that activated a lot of sort of things inside of me. Um, and it was all just like in this sort of intimate kind of um, setting. And uh, after a while, I was just like, man, I want to do that for somebody else. I want to, like, provide that service to somebody else, you know? Okay, so let me um, ask you – I want to ask you a question here. This We're going to go um, into the realm of personal motivation here now. Sure. Uh, and this will sound – this will seem at first like an attack, but I don't mean it this way. But I'm going to say it like the way some people think it. What okay. gives you the right to think that you have anything to say? <sighs> Uh, yeah, is, I don't, this is, I don't this have is the... what I wrestle with, right? I say this to myself sometimes when I'm sitting down. It's like, what gives me the right to think that I have something to add oh, to this conversation? I, yeah, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have the, I don't have the right other than the basic like human rights that we're all given in this country. But like, I don't, I don't have the, I mean, I just, all I'm trying to do is just do a, do a thing for me and I hope it makes somebody happy. You know, that's that's all. That's it. That's my only motivation is that I want to do it till it's done. And if somebody sees it and it inspires them to do the same thing, then mission accomplished. And my voice is just my voice. It's just who I am. I'm trying to just be as honest as possible. So I don't have the right. I don't have any kind of right. I just. But you don't give up. You don't talk yourself out of it. I think a lot of creative people. No talk themselves out of it because of that nope. question that they have inside like why should I yeah and I can I can understand that I mean it's it's easy to get intimidated especially with something as time consuming as comics but um, you know once you kind of release yourself of that burden of like oh well maybe I can just do this and I can do it on my own terms and it has nothing to do with um, any kind of um you know, sort of vague kind of assertion of, you know, of righthood uh, or any kind of um, uh, privilege or whatever, you know what I mean? It's just simply like this artifice. It's just this piece of art that you're making, you know? And um, if if it upsets someone, I feel sad, but ultimately that's them. If it makes somebody happy... I feel happy, but also, you know, I don't see the person reading it. I don't, I'm not there in the room when somebody's enjoying it. So to me, it's a completely blind exercise. As far as I'm concerned, it's just me and the comic, you know. 
that's one of the things I really, really love about comics. Um, like when I was younger, I, I, I love movies. I love watching movies. I'd love to make movies. But me as an individual, that's uh, a long ways away. You need a team, right? Same with video games. If you want to make that epic video game that you remember from your childhood, you need a team to do that. But as far as comics go, you alone in a room, like Bone was done by one guy and then it was colored later, but like he made something as epic as Lord of the Rings just by himself. Yeah. And put it out there. Yeah. You know, like that's, I think that's kind of the magic of it. You can do something on that grand a scale all by yourself, just alone with your pencils. Yeah, it's, it's magnificent. It can be as large as it needs to be and as small as it needs to be. And it satisfies both this like, you know, the, this like long form narrative literary desire, but also this visual desire, you know, you can show things, you can demonstrate things, you can, you can be as abstract as you need to be. And you can be as representational as you need to be. You know, it's, it's brilliant. There's, it can be anything. You guys, great. you both talked about a team, right? That you don't Mm -hmm. need for comics, but like most people are familiar with comics as having a writer, a penciler, an anchor, a letterer, a colorist. Mm, Yeah. Uh, But you do all those things yourself on your own book, don't you, Danny? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, Because uh, not because I'm some kind of like weird megalomaniac or anything, but um, mostly because all those things are fun to me, you know? Like I, I just want to do them because I, I, it's part of the challenge and it's part of the enjoyment for me is, is the, the catharsis. Uh, when I first sort of started working with, um, chapter house, the first, the first thing they did was, Oh, we'll hook you up with a colorist and we'll hook you up with the letterer. And I kind of, you know, I saw a few kind of portfolios and they were okay. I mean, these people were generally pretty good. And then I sort of said, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself because I, I like it. I want to be able to sort of experiment and try things out maybe this works maybe this doesn't work and you know i it's it's the the process for me is really enjoyable so on a lot of my own projects i do all of those steps myself as well and i find it it leaves the door open for whimsy it does right you can have an idea one moment and then adjust the page to suit it uh, the next, but if you're working with the team, then you have to, of course, send that email to the letterer, or to the colorist, or. You know. I I feel that way. I feel that way, especially with lettering, because um, what looks great on the scripted page sometimes doesn't look great on the comic page. Absolutely, yeah. And so what you can do is you can go like, oh well, this is this sounds ridiculous, you know, this character that I have sounds like you know uh, some. Uh, you know, they sound like an extra from a Shakespeare play. You know, I'm going to alter this dialogue and make it sound a little looser and a bit more fun or whatever. You know what I mean? You can you can experiment. You can, you well, can like you said, add whimsy. Yeah, know? and juxtaposition. Like there are some times where, a, you know, you have an entire paragraph. You know, not you specifically, but the generalized artist you uh, have an entire paragraph in a script that you realize once you juxtapose it against the image that you've drawn, you just need a single word or a That's my favorite. single phrase. Mm. When yeah. the image basically negates everything that you thought you needed to say in that dialogue, yeah. when you yeah. just say it visually, that's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, that happened to me this morning. Um, I was uh, I was sort of drawing this sequence where, um, you know, a character, you know, one of the bad guys, he kind of like wakes up. He, he was knocked out temporarily. And he wakes up and he notices the, the hero and uh, he says, he said, the original line was something like, huh, what happened? 
And then he goes, wait, you. And then he turns around and, you know, lunges for her. Uh, and I looked at that and I was like, he's, he doesn't need to say those things. <laughs> this is all, this is just, the, the reader's going to know. They'll yeah. make the connections because it happened on the page before. <laughs> so <laughs> they're going to, they're going to remember, you know. Yeah. So and, why, so. and the word, the picture is taking the place of the words in a way that makes yeah. Yeah. So I've never worked with a letterer, but if you if you're in that situation, you send the new page of artwork and you send a revised thing where like a bunch of that is crossed off. Do oh well, it depends on whose workflow it is. Like at yeah. the you know on the Marvel level, um, often the letterer is the you know not every time, dear listeners, but often the letterer is the last word on that script. They the writer has moved on to another thing. Um, by the time the letterer gets it. So there isn't a chance for that whimsical mm. editing. Um, some writers, like uh, Brian Michael Bendis, famously um, looks through, makes sure the letterer step is the, his last step. That's his last version. And he often edits out, uh, in his book, Words for Pictures, he talks about how he takes out a lot of dialogue and a lot of things once he gets the finished art. I'll kill you, alligator man! Uh, Danny, I want to ask you, about something that's been bugging me about life, death, and sorcery. Sure. Yeah. Um, do you think you could leave some panel counts for the rest of us on your pages? <laughs> right? like, a, like a typical comic has three to five, maybe eight if you're feeling ambitious, nine if you're like, you know, Giffen at his strongest. But you have some, like, it seems like some of your pages have as many as 22 panels on them. And I just, yeah. number one, I've become totally, I feel totally inadequate as a comic <laughs> artist. And number two, I think, how the heck didn't you just break this all up into a whole issue? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just, uh, sometimes I want to put, I want to pack the page with, with information. I mean, I have this theory and it is based on nothing other than just a wild cockamamie gut instinct but i feel like sometimes when you put more panels on a page you condense time a lot more mm. so mm. um you know a page with say seven or eight panels can take place over the course of minutes or even hours but if you have a page with 22 panels on it that is moment by moment beat for beat you know, and I like things that are I like to to ratchet up the pacing of the story and I like things that are fast paced. So, so in um, the way that animation you know, comes to that count, right, the more yeah. eventually, you know, at a certain point, if you were doing that, you just need to add basically another 40, another 40 or so panels and each of your pages would be an animation <laughs> section. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's more like um and and you know from from like an aesthetic point of view, I, I like how full pages look. I I think um, I was talking about this the other day with somebody, and we were discussing sort of the aesthetics of page layout, and um, she was sort of you know talking to me about just sort of um, sort of more kind of liberal page layout where maybe there's less panels and there's more sort of graphic design kind of um, panel layouts kind of, you know, used. And, and I like those and I really admire them in a lot of ways. Um, uh, and I find them attractive too. Um, for me though, what's actually really beautiful is a page that has tons of little pictures on it. Um, and I think that comes from 
my eye was sort of tuned into that because when I was small, uh, we had these uh, French comic albums, you know, Bede, like large graphic albums. And um, when you read something like Tintin, right, it's not three rows with three panels sometimes. Sometimes it's four rows with four panels. Yeah, it's like so I was used to pages, right, with huge amounts of information. Yeah. Yeah, and I was, I was used to getting that much you know, information from my, from my comic pages. And it's something that every once in a while doesn't sit right with me if I'm reading, you know, uh, other work and I think, ah, oh, there could be more here. I want to see this beat. I want to see this moment. I want to see this. And so my comic, because I'm the boss of my own comic, I get to just throw in as many panels as I want. Um, so this morning I did a page with 12 panels on it. Oh well, that's but you know, I, for you. That's about average, right? That's about yeah. Average. For me, that's yeah, I, when I see a script or I've made notes to myself to do that. That's no, I I I move heaven and earth to avoid that. <laughs> but I'll mention something <laughs> that physically happens. Uh, I was rereading your stuff, um, and you know, one of the things that happens is that when the moment comes and the page turn happens and you have one of these really packed. It's usually around an action sequence, right? You have a lot of things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, Physically, I lean. I found found myself leaning into the page and engaging with it. And you know, we know that if you change your body language, it changes your mood, right? And so the mm. tension of that action of having to lean in and hunch over and like really, you know, maybe because I'm old, I have to do these actions, <laughs> but really look into the page um, changed my relationship with it, and it got me thinking about how I could do more panels on pages and mm. then um i had a good night's sleep and i woke up and i thought okay i'm going to do more panels and then i gave up on that idea Almost. <laughs> <laughs> uh just you know man just tell stories the way it feels natural to you you know there's no uh there's no real there aren't any rules and i think that's all kind of why we're doing this i mean secretly mm-hmm. when we are by ourselves and we're just drawing and we're like i'm really great i get to you, you ever like make a choice where you're like Ah, God, you know, maybe I should really put this moment in here because that's the that's the right thing to do. Like that's the thing. Like the little editor inside of you is saying, like, put that moment in there. Come on. And then the other part of you is like, Nah. No, this is my. I'm the, I'm the, yeah, I'm the I, boss of this page. I'll do. I'll do whatever I want to do. And that's basically what it comes down to, man. It's like you put exactly the right amount of panels on the pages that you draw because you are you and I am me. And there it is. It all work out in the end. It does work out as long <laughs> as you're doing the work, right? You yeah. Know, I think that's the trick. Now, were you ever influenced by um, um, 22 panels that always work? You know, Wally Wood's big spread. Are you familiar with that? No, no. I have no idea what that Amazing. is. Amazing. Okay, because I see – okay, so you naturally do – Dear listeners, the first thing you should do while you're listening to this is pause and go look up Wally Wood's 22 panels that always work. And this is a, was a guide that uh, Mr. Wood gave to a bunch of other illustrators who were stumped on how to create dynamic angles and storytelling in what may seem like a script where nothing dynamic or interesting is happening. <laughs> right? So how to change the camera, like how to adjust the setting and the, you know, quote unquote camera to make mm. dynamic storytelling in a less than dynamic situation. And I just your your own compositions are extremely dynamic. And when you add that to things that are also dynamic in the action, I just find it's like quite bombastic. For a guy who's so mm. um 
meticulous as you said if it, it it feels very frenetic and very um you know you like jazz music in comics that's what you like. <laughs> yeah man that's great uh, i really appreciate you saying that actually um that's exactly the intention is so that it, i'm trying to make it look easy you know um just as loose and wild as possible and uh, as far as uh, dynamic angles the way i do it a lot of the time is i i um i actually make physical things and like look at them <laughs> from different points of view there's this weird little um action sequence uh that takes place in uh the third chapter the first volume uh around like a little crypt on the side of a hill it's when the uh it's when the villain first meets the three sisters and uh kills the uh the police officers spoiler alert uh, yeah whatever it's fine <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, i don't it's okay um so so in that in that part um uh, I knew what I, I knew what I wanted in my head, and I, I was trying to visualize it. So, I li- literally, what I did was uh, one day I just um, I took a blanket and I took an old shoebox and I just sort of set it up, like mocked it up, just just in my studio, like on my daybed, and uh, just floated my camera, my phone around it, and looked at it from different angles and tried to get a feeling for like just this fake geography that existed in my mind, you know. Um, because, um, that, that, that cemetery is actually based on a real cemetery here in Toronto called Mount Pleasant Cemetery. And I used to live next there when I was, uh, when I was growing up and, uh, Mount Pleasant Cemetery is next to, um, this, uh, sort of trail called the Beltline Trail, um, which runs along a creek called Mud Creek. And, um, it's very, it is a little bit hilly, but I needed to fictionalize part of it in the story to make it seem like a deeper basin than it actually was, you know, to, to, to add a sense of drama and to, you know, make the characters look as though they're traversing, you know, geography. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You did like the old, uh, 40s, 50s movie studio trick, right? You'd shoot some of it on location and then the part of it that needs to be bigger and better you build on set. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally it. That's totally it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was really, it was actually really fun, um, gathering reference for that, uh, sequence because I got to visit the old cemetery, which I used to hang out in all the time (laughs) and, uh, walk around and took little snapshots and all kinds of things. Yeah, it was really nice. It was very, uh, it's very picturesque and beautiful and very peaceful. He has grafted a living animal's brain into this newly dead body. So your book is speculative fiction. It's magic realism. It's like action adventure. It's like all this different stuff. Um, how much of the real world is in it, though? Uh, there, it shows up every now and then. Um, like uh, her high school is my old high school. Um, there's a character in there who is sort of loosely based on me, who is basically a caricature of me when I was 15. Um, Did you go lurking back there, to the high school to take photos? Is there people um, looking for you right now? Thinking that you're no. no good. No, man. I have a I have a yearbook, man. Like new new <laughs> photos wouldn't do me any good because uh, because it, the building's different. You know, I needed photos that took me back to that specific time. I went to a giant high school. It's called Northern. It was massive, about two thousand students. Um, 
it was so big. Is that school was so big? It had another high school inside of it. it had a school for um, uh, deaf and hard of hearing students as well. So there was a school within a school. You know, it was uh, four four floors. The topmost. You know, we had facilities to the wazoo. We had a pool. We had like three gymnasiums. It was just a massive, massive high school. It was gargantuan, and I needed to recapture that feeling of me walking to school in the morning and seeing this sea of teenagers all filtering in through what we called the south doors um i mean they were the doors on the south side of the school they were the south doors where all the cool kids hung out a little bit of toronto high school lore from the night i wasn't a cool kid i didn't hang out at the south doors (laughs) (laughs) what door did you sneak in through then uh, me usually, I usually walked way. I usually walked past the south doors, across the front lawn, and went in through the north doors because that's where the um, that's kind of where the dweebs walked into the school. <laughs> See, at our high school, we had a uh, there was a sort of front door, back door scenario too, and the back door was like the smoking doors. We had this smoking pad where if kids smoked, they could go, they could hang out in this. The, the school is kind of a U-shape around a parking lot. Yeah. And so they let the kids that smoked for good, better PR not be out front in the school, but they'd have to go in within this U-shape, sort of hidden alcove where they could smoke. Oh, yeah, It'd be yeah. shifty teenagers, but not for the neighborhood's sake. And uh, I got into the habit of going in those doors. Uh, maybe for similar reasons, that sea of teenagers just, you know, it irked me. And um, I ended up for a while... People were like, oh, I didn't know you smoked. And of course, if you smoked, you were of a certain caliber of person. And I was a pretty preppy (laughs) high school kid, so it didn't jive with people's perception of me. And I suddenly, for like two months, had this cred that I had not earned just because I was coming in through the smoking doors. And people were giving me this wide berth, and kids that normally would, you know, pick on a skinny nerd like that would be like oh no he hangs out with the smoking kids you gotta watch out for that yeah well it's true uh it it gives you it gives you a little bit of um a little bit of uh social currency in the in the teenager world it's a great commercial for smoking we just did on our podcast yeah that's right yeah (laughs) hey man but it's 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 true though i mean no but seriously though that brings me to a very uh good point and i want to mention this as far as like going back in time um you know, my, my main character in this comic, she's a teenager and she, she smokes cigarettes, you know, and, um, every once in a while I get flack for that. People, um, you know, it shows they'll flip through and they'll be like, Hmm, I don't think I like this. And, um, you know, the only thing I can say to that is like, that's what troublemaking teenagers did in the mid nineties. I mean, I don't, you know, that was, that existed. That's a real thing. Kids do that. It's bad. Do you think I shouldn't. That, do you think that there's a move right now? I'm feeling it in some of it in my own work, and I'm seeing it in other places too, that there's this move where the fictional worlds we create are supposed to be setting an example. I don't, I don't believe in that. No, I, I don't I believe in it either. I don't think yeah. it should. They shouldn't always be setting an example. But um, do you feel more of that policing happening than it used to be? Yes, I do, yeah. 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 I, I, find it, I find it to be puerile. I think it's just – I think it's drivel. Um, I think that if you want to tell a story, you have to use all the tools at your disposal and you have to um, be as honest as you can. If representing people in an idealized way is part of your storytelling process, then do it. 
then you have my blessing. But, uh, you know, if um, something that's intrinsically sort of um, important to the like sort of realism of the or the just sort of the world building of the story that you're trying to create is maybe a little bit ugly or it doesn't it's kind of unpleasant, then you shouldn't, you know, Shouldn't that shouldn't be that. you shouldn't censor that you shouldn't stop yourself um and and this is very light you know censoring right like this is by by you know by the standards of even 30 years ago i think that censorship was a way more uh, sort of prevalent and way more uh, sort of powerful force to fight against but now it's mostly just sort of like policing little kind of aspects of the story and stuff like that there's a really good example there's um there's this a British show called uh, End of the Fucking World or something like that. I forget what it's called. Uh, and I watched the pilot like it just yesterday. Just launched, right? Just, yeah, I w- yeah. Like, watched the first two episodes. Yeah. So this isn't really giving anything away. It happens in the first two seconds of the show. But, you know, the, one of the main characters is sort of a self-described sociopath. And um, he uh, there's, a, there's a scene where he, he kills an animal. Um and the show's a comedy, right? It's a, it's a, it's a dark comedy. Sounds funny. And, I, and I, I'm very sensitive to that sort of thing. And I immediately was turned off by it. I actually kind of like, I was, I really ruffled my feathers and I was a bit incredulous for a second. And then I just kind of simmered down and I was like, oh, no, no, no. This like, this is, this works in the story. It's part of the story. Like this is. It wasn't gratuitous. Like, it wasn't gratuitous. Exactly. And so I, I bought it after a while. And I, I think that, Sometimes, uh, you know, you need to push the boundaries of unpleasantness in order to, um, in order to just sort of tell something that's more effective and more convincing, and that sort of sells the reality to you. That being said, I mean, obviously, you should avoid things that are, um, you know, tasteless. You know. Yeah. Well, we uh, you know, we talk sometimes. Uh, I use the phrase often when I'm talking about people's work that there's a difference between um, rude and nude. And we went, yeah. to, we went to see uh, Shape of Water last night, a fantastic mm. film. But it really was a perfect example of a film that had nudity, but there was no rudeness in it at all. No. A, it was quite a beautiful love story that never felt like it was, uh, you know, trying to sexualize anything. It was just, you know, it was this perfect, I don't know, I don't want to spoil the film for anybody, but um, it just puts right up front this idea that, you know, People have bodies, and sometimes they're naked, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely um, it's definitely a, a, a sort of a, a thing that um, you know people need to uh, address, especially when they're dealing with their private work. Now, as far as like corporate work is concerned, like whoever's paying the bills is making the rules. You know, like that's <laughs> that's what it comes down to. You know what I mean? Like and. And there you go. I mean, when it comes to stuff like that, like how Ray is portrayed in a Star Wars movie or whatever, then, you know, then that's up to Disney, really, you know. And I might have my own opinions, but that's really, that's that's all it is, you know. It's a, it's a product. For personal work, you know, I think people should allow themselves to be more nuanced and to show the ugly side of things. I, I call it embracing the darkness. Uh, term that I live by. Oh, you think darkness is your ally? You merely adopted the dark. You have a few projects brewing, I imagine. 
yeah, I've got uh, I've got some things. Um, I mean, right now I'm just sort of working on Life Death uh, Volume Two and just sort of cranking away on that. Um, is there more darkness in the new volume? Uh, yeah, there is. It 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 definitely it goes down into some depths. That's for sure. Um, is that cathartic yeah. for you? Yeah, it is. I I think that um, I think it's important for people to uh, embrace their, you know, embrace their fears and their I don't know their dark thoughts and things like that. Kind of is there's this really horrible. Have you ever seen Star Trek Five? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The 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 weakest of the original Star Trek um, uh, movies. Everyone knows. There's one great line in it. And there's this great this moment where uh, Spock's <laughs> half-brother, Cybok, is um, <laughs> is trying to uh, convince um, Kirk to, you know, enter this sort of state of nirvana and, like, abandon his pain and become one of his ac- acolytes. And then Kirk rejects him. And he says, no, I need my pain. It motivates me or some something like that. What have you done to my friend? I've done nothing. This is who they are. Didn't you know that? No, I didn't. Now learn something about yourself. No, I refuse. Jim, try to be open about this. About what? I've made the wrong choices in my life. I turned left when I should have turned right. I know what my weaknesses are. I don't need Cyborg to take me on a tour of them. If you just unbend at all. And be brainwashed by this con man. I was wrong. This con man took away my pain. Damn it, Bones, you're a doctor. You know that pain and guilt can't be taken away with a wave of a magic wand. They're the things we carry with us, the things that make us who we are. If we lose them, we lose ourselves. I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. Even a stop clock tells the right time, you know, twice a day. And that that's one of those moments in, the mo- in that movie where you're like, oh, man, this might be a weak movie, but that is... That is the truth. That's its, you know, Star Trek has its roots so much in Shakespeare. Like the writers, just it's so obvious in what they do. And there's a scene in, uh, in Macbeth when Macduff is notified that his wife and children have been killed, mm. and he, um, you know, he's just bereft. He's just overcome with grief at the moment just before the army is supposed to be marching. He's supposed to lead a bunch of bro dudes with their swords into battle, and he's crying. He's broken down. He's weeping openly. And uh, the Prince of uh, Cumberland is saying to him, you know, dude, you got to man up, basically. And, you, you know, you have to do this like a man. That's where the phrase, you know, be, do it like a man. You know, some people think that's where it originates, is in that play. And in the part that people leave out is his response. He looks at him crying and says, but first I must feel it as a man. Yeah. Right. And yeah, so man. He lets his feelings wash over him. He feels everything he needs to feel about that grief, and then he's able to act. He doesn't yeah. push it away. He tells him, like, in order to do what you're asking me to do, I must feel it. I can't, I can't push it into a little box. It's called embracing the darkness. I mean, other people call it processing your feelings, but I think embracing the darkness sounds better. Sounds cooler for sure. <laughs> sounds better. It looks better on a uh, band poster, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, there's that is that is the truth of it. That is what it is, you know. Uh, and um, I uh, I like stories where um, 
especially fantasy where the the wisdom is uh that's doled out by the old wizards and whatnot is uh is more sort of philosophical and it has shades of gray like that in it and it isn't just sort of you know this sort of puritanical light side dark side stuff you know i find that stuff really irritates me actually I find it really really frustrating you know so, um, there are a lot of great stories with that in it, but I, me personally, as somebody who likes, you know, philosophy and history, I, I think it's it's not something that I would enjoy putting in a story. Well, one thing I've been enjoying is watching at the studio lately is Justin is working on putting him on the spot. Now we're going to turn this, you and I, Danny, we're going to zero in on Justin. For oh, second, Justin. All right. Mm. All right. So across the studio floor, he's working on two things right now. One of them is the follow-up to... Quackers wants to fly, right? A book about a duck that just you know didn't know how to fly, and some people like some other so the, friends of yeah, the pond. Yeah, in the exciting sequel, the owl loses his who's, and the animals <laughs> in the pond help him find his who's. Okay, so on one <laughs> side, right, that's happening, but at the same time, he's brainstorming a story about a child soldier that has lost his physical body, and his brain has been removed and put into a mechanized machine soldier. That's cool. Right? So I mean, it's tragic, but that's a great idea. So let's ask Justin about his darkness. <laughs> what would you tell him that he should embrace? Uh, and what are the dangers of letting one darkness spill into your duck book? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the thing is that it's one thing to draw a big robot with a brain in it, you know, like that. I mean, we've we've been there, you know. But really what makes it what makes it a story is is more about how much of that boy is in there. And how much of this new body is is kind of torturing him, you know? Because it is, it's, it's utter and complete pain. I mean, a, a boy, a child, a child who never got to be a child, and a child who never got to be a child is a child who begs to be a child, who wants to be a kid, and now he's completely robbed of that. And so, really, the darkness comes from essentially seeing you know, seeing somebody, somebody's young, you know, in pain that you can't help, you know, it's going to be brutal. I mean, you're going to have your, your readers in tears, you know, that is the plan. And yeah, I think, uh, at some point along the lines too, um, kind of like the, the whole embracing your, your darkness subject that we're on here, um, stories that don't necessarily have good guy, bad guy, happy ending, I started mm. to gravitate more and more towards those where, you know, the lines are blurred. The bad guy is not necessarily all bad. He has his reasons. He's doing what he thinks is right. And the good guys aren't necessarily all good and mm. all that. Yeah. And I, I just feel like that kind of storytelling is a little more real and raw. And, and, and I like that. And kind of, yeah, with this story, just thinking about... Um, um, it's, it's actually something that shows up in, in Black Mirror uh, in the new season as well quite a bit. The whole idea of um, if your mind is removed from your body, uh, what, what rights does your consciousness have? You know? like, yeah. So if, you're, if your consciousness is, is duplicated into something else and then that thing, whatever that, that next, that thing is tortured or put through ordeals or whatever, like what rights does that have? It's literally your intellectual yeah. property. Rights. Yeah, it's it's a clone yeah. of your consciousness, and and so that whole idea, and then um, the subject of it's it's a child soldier, um, but it's not really a child soldier. So 
you don't think about it the same way or you don't have to treat it the same way. It's Like if you knew the operating system of your phone was a six-year-old boy, right? Would yeah. That be, would that be, you know, morally wrong to get it to do all this work for you? I would feel, I would feel pretty bad about it. I would, I don't know what I'd do. You know what, to be honest with you, I think I would just stop using my phone and I would power it down in the hopes that that was the best chance I had of, of putting this, this sad being out of its misery. You know? So is that killing it? Did you just kill something now? I think I think I might have, yeah. <laughs> Embrace yeah. the darkness, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. All right. Well, on that marvelous um, and melancholic note, <laughs> I would like to thank you, Danny, for being our guest on Super Pulp Science. Um, Thanks would, for having me. Yeah, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the next show. Um, yeah, is that going to be in in March? Are you coming coming over? Yeah, yeah, we'll see you in March for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right on, man. Yeah, Are you going to come out for some karaoke? Some karaoke. I will <laughs> bear witness. Now, if you'll recall, the last time you brought me out to karaoke, we exited yes. at two in the morning into a crime scene. We did, yes. Right? There had been a stabbing. <laughs> we had, dear listeners, Danny tricked me out into downtown Toronto. And we, he, he sent me this text. Hey, what are you up to? Come to this address. Oh, okay. That seems reasonable. Yeah. And (laughs) he doesn't say what it is or where it is. And he says, you'll come up the stairs and there's a private room. So now I'm a little bit, both my interest is peaked, but now I'm also nervous. So I text my wife to say, I might be being tricked into a weird backroom porn situation. I don't really know these guys (laughs) super well. So I just, in full disclosure, want you to know that I don't know for sure what's happening, but I'm going to check it out. So I go up these back stairs and I'm, it's a little weird because it's like quite dark and it's very quiet in there. And then I'm let in and there's all these comic book professionals singing loud karaoke, which I don't think was less strange than what I had imagined. And then when the night is finally finished, we come down and because of the back door nature of this club, the police did not realize that they should have blocked off that door. And you and I walked out, right, inside the police yeah. tape, right. And if there, I if I remember correctly, there was a there was a you know young uh, you know reprobate being um, pinned against the um, the trunk of a police car, while two um, officers were screaming in his face. Um, the whole place was blocked off with police lines. There was a crowd across the street, and um, basically, you and I just sort of well, there was that big dude in the vest who just looked night. at us and said, "You guys can't be in here." And for a moment, yeah. for just a moment, I wished I'd had sunglasses on so that I could pull them off, like really in slow motion, and pretend we were detectives. This is my case. Yeah, this is my scene, right? <laughs> we're detectives. Unfortunately, uh, we were just comic book writers and illustrators, and they shoot us out of the crime scene. Right. Yeah, yeah. I guess my uh, crime-solving days are were just a fantasy. So, oh well. So the, our exit from this podcast hopefully will not lead any of our listeners into a crime scene. But uh, this has been Super Pulp Science, and I, I invite all of our listeners to join the fight and make comics.